Well, we and our listeners are fully in the year 2024 now, and I think it's starting out okay, despite all the uh, bad news coming from Japan. Things are okay here in the uh, cave here that we inhabit with our great stereo and all the uh, music that we listen to. I had a good listening week, I thought. Yeah, we started off with some big bad events, earthquakes, planes on fire. Planes on fire, yeah. Yeah, acts of violence, but (laughs) at least personally, so far so good, yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, but yeah, not so good for Japan, but good for us, so I prefer world peace everywhere, of course, and that's what we're all about here on the Adult Music Podcast. If everyone would just chill out and listen to some music, they'd all be in a better mood. We would. And the new releases of the year are already coming out, you know, so adding to the list with 2024 dates, looks like it's going to be a good year right from the start. We're here at episode 147 this week. Wow. Yeah, just getting up there nonstop, rolling along, bringing you, as always, music for the mature mind at Adult Music, the podcast that brings you new classical and jazz releases. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm your co-host, Mike. And also on New Year's Day, our previous episode came out and our guest spot on the Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard podcast Mm. came out. That's with AJ and Johnny, Mm. who look at several versions of the same jazz standard in each episode. And we were talking about you don't know what love is. And we concluded that they're right. We don't know what love (laughs) is. Most people don't, but... Yeah, I guess most people don't, yeah. Definitely go over and check that episode out. That was a lot of fun, and we got a bunch of different contrasting versions and had some interesting discussions, so go check their channel out. They come out every two weeks, featuring one jazz standard. You get a history lesson and a lot of humor over there. There'll be a link to their podcast in the description. Also, at the end of the audio here, you can hear a little promo snippet from them. Also, for all the music we're going to discuss this evening, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music if you want to go hear all of the recordings. At the top of the description, you can also get all the music in one place on our full episode playlist on Deezer, CD quality streaming music from France. They also have the podcast if you want to listen to everything in one place. And if you don't see the full description or the recording links are hard to follow on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow for this and all previous episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that also helps us get listed in the music category recommendations, and that helps us get new listeners as well. Also, come follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can get extra info about new releases throughout the week, see some interaction with the musicians and artists. You can leave a message or comment there as well. And if you want to get in touch with us directly with any comments or questions, you can also reach us by email. We'd love to hear from you. Our address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Before we get into the music, we should mention to listeners who know that we live in Japan and may have been worried about us. Yeah, we did kind of get like sort of the edge of that earthquake, but we didn't really feel it much where we are. It's it was the center was far away from us, so we're okay. And the uh, the mountain lair is pretty much impregnable because uh, that's right. It's, it's like Superman's Fortress of Solitude. We're we're fine. <laughs> I was actually listening to one of these recordings and taking yeah. some notes at the time. And when I started feeling everything shake, and it was one of the longest earthquakes I've ever felt. Yeah, it was a long time. You can't really tell because you always think it's longer than it is, but it did feel like it went on for a long, long time. And when I felt it, it was kind of light, as I said, but because it went on for such a long time, I thought to myself, if it's going to go on for that long, we're probably not the epicenter and I should check out what's going on. And then I got on the internet and figured it out. You know, you sort of figured that out. 
Well, since we're still talking about bad news, this week we do have a death to acknowledge. Yeah. So let's get the theme rolled out. Let me get up to the piano here. This week we lost the great Les McCann, or actually it was before New Year's, but it wasn't reported, I think, until a few days later. That's Leslie Coleman McCann, born September 23rd, 1935. He passed away December 29th, 2023, at the age of 88 years old. A great American jazz pianist and also a vocalist. He's known for his kind of innovative soul jazz and also his uh, 1969 recording of the protest song, Compared to What? And his music has been, you know, some of the most sampled jazz in hip-hop music. Interestingly, when he was in the Navy, he won a singing contest, and he had an appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show as a result of that. But after he left the Navy, he went out to California, and he had his own trio out there. He was offered a chance to work with Cannonball Adderley's group, but he decided to focus on his own music. And he was active until he had a stroke in the mid-1990s. But he came back to music in 2002, and he continued to release new music until 2018. Well, he was one of the heroes and mentors of a pianist we really like, Joe Alterman. And we covered his recent recording of McCann's compositions on a recording called Big Mo and Little Joe. So condolences also to Joe Alterman. I'm sure he's really feeling sad at this time. Hmm. Yeah, that was a really good record, too. Yes. This one I should probably pick up on a, a CD if I can. Les McCann's recordings, you know, they're infused with blues and all kinds of great rhythms, and they always make you feel really good. So if you've never checked his music out, pay him a tribute and listen to some of those recordings. All right, we're just about to get into the music for this week. As usual, we're going to be playing samples, and here's our fair use disclaimer. The music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. Yeah, not only that, if you're listening to classical music, it almost behooves you to listen to at least the entire piece that we're talking about, because a lot of what's exciting about classical music happens over time. That's right. And like certain events will be built up to, and I can't really sample those. You won't get the effect. Anyway, so, so I just told you the secret to listen to classical music. You got to just listen and listen to the events as they unfold. And they do unfold. Speaking of which, our first classical album is a Baroque recording. It is called Unlocked Brescianello Volume 2 by La Serenissima, conducted by Adrian Chandler. And he's also the solo violinist on this album, too released on the Signum label. I like La Serenissima. We talked about one of their albums, like, I can't remember the name of it now. It's like Seicento or something. It was the one with right, the, right. the red motor scooter on yeah, the Yeah, that was a cover. really good one. That was a really good one. We, that was our favorite one so far. They also made a really famous recording of the Four Seasons by Vivaldi, like, long ago, long years and years before we started uh, doing this podcast. And they were one of the first, if not the first, classical ensemble to start following the podcast, you know, after we did that. Yeah, that was really after nice. We talked about them, so I'm really, uh, we're really happy to have them aboard, and I'm really always interested in to see what they're doing. Like everybody else, they sort of got hit by the, um, the COVID lockdowns in the years 2020 to 2023. The Brescianella Volume 2, the first volume, I'm pretty sure we actually covered this one too, was called Behind Closed Doors. Now, the title might... Um, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, the title might make you think of the COVID lockdown, which it should. I think that's why they called it right. that. 
The idea to record an album of Brechinello's music came in 2020 because director Adrian Chandler said that since their first project on their return to work once COVID started would be experimental because they have to socially distance while they recorded. You know, the, the ensemble isn't together like it usually is. Right. And the repertoire should be experimental too, he decided. And I couldn't speak more highly for this decision because I love learning about new th things yeah. in classical music, even if they're really old, like new old things like Brechinello would be, I'd consider him to be new old. <laughs> okay. The first album consisted of the first six works in Brechinello's Opus 1 collection, plus an orchestral suite. And we talked about that album on episode 38 in the Funhouse, which was uploaded on November 22nd, 2021. Wow, how long have we been doing this podcast? <laughs> Back then, we weren't sampling music on the album, so I thought we'd talk about this continuation of recordings of Brechinello's Opus 1, and we could actually play some of it for you. This is going to be the first time we sample La Serenissima oh, was great. playing on this podcast. We just haven't done it yet, because we made that momentous decision in 2023, a year that will always be a watershed in adult music history. <laughs> and now we routinely get banned on YouTube. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Anyway, by the time they came to complete the Opus 1 set, the result of which we have on Unlocked, things have moved on, and I guess the doors are unlocked. They're back together again, I guess. And I think that's why this recording is called Unlocked. Anyway, Brescianello was from uh, Bologna, and the goal is to revive his music, in this case. Chandler says the works featured here certainly present a good case for a major Brescianello revival. Yeah, I would agree with that. He sounds a lot like Vivaldi, in fact. Yes. Some, sometimes he's heavily influenced by Vivaldi. He wasn't prolific, and Vivaldi was, but his surviving output is of an exceedingly high quality. Yes, I would agree with that, too, on the evidence of the music we have here. Okay, let's start. There are six concertos and uh, sinfonias in this collection, so we're starting with Concerto 4. Concertos and Sinfonias 1 through 3 are on the earlier Behind Closed Doors album from 2021. Concerto 4 in E minor for violin, strings, and continuo. First movement is an allegro, and let's... Uh, just sample this right away before I start talking about it. take this away as soon as uh, Adrian Chandler starts his solo, <laughs> but we'll hear some of him soloing later. Okay, so first of all, this is a smaller ensemble, or smaller sounding ensemble, than we heard on An Englishman Abroad, which we talked about last year. I like the sound of Baroque ensembles better this way. I like the smaller ensembles. I mentioned that on that podcast, too. So I'm already really happy with this recording. The tempo is a straightforward allegro, and I'm going to have to say something about the, uh, the tempos here. It's pretty interesting. It doesn't have the excitement and adventurous we get from, for example, Il Giardino Armonico, who tend to really push tempos, mm -hmm. sometimes to extreme lengths. But Chandler and La Serenissima prefer to let the music speak for itself, and that's just as well, as this music is new to us, and it's, this is a good way to hear it. Chandler's violin soloing is stylish and appealing. There's a bit of a restraint to the way they uh, play this music, and it's, um, it's a good first um, way to hear this uh, recording or this music. It's a very no-nonsense performance all around. 
The second movement is an adagio. It has a Vivaldian opening with quarter note chords repeating as the solo violin curves around them. This is so typical of Vivaldi, really. And uh, you'll probably recognize that quality when you hear this. Let's just sample the beginning. So that was Adrian Chandler um, playing the violin solo there. The third movement is an allegro, and this movement bursts out of the gate with a rollicking rhythm. It sounds more aggressive than the opening movement. Now, here's what I want to say. Both movements are marked allegro, and these are two different sort of energies and speeds. Um, there's a lot of warmth in the first departure from the tutti in this one, and some fine soloing from Chandler. I like his digging in with the bow for the staccato line he plays at the 45-second mark. Before I sample that, though, I want to say, something we're going to hear on this album is you're going to see these markings allegro, and they're all going to be a little different within the pieces. Like, one will be slower than the other. Speaking of Il Giardino Amarinco, I think it was Giovanni Antonini. He wrote something about tempo markings. We grew up, I remember studying the piano, that you'd see allegro, and then it would have like a metronome marking in the score, which right. really originally weren't there. So we came to associate metronome markings with the tempo marking, right. allegro. But that's not actually what the composers had in mind. Allegro, is, it's kind of a mood, really. Right. And no matter what speed you use, you just want to capture that mood. And I think that Chandler's, as Antonini said in his article, Chandler's doing something similar here. He's sort of um, capturing that mood with slightly different tempi in each right. of these um, movements. And I think this is pretty interesting. So I want to sample this third movement Chandler's playing here. And I like the way he really digs in here with the bow. Listen to this. So as you can see, that was a lot faster, I think, than the uh, and, and livelier than the first movement. The violin playing and really the ensemble playing, too, are just much more exciting here. So it leaves us in a good place. Okay, tracks four and five, Symphonia four in B-flat major. Symphonia or Symphonia? In English, we'll usually say Symphonia. I can't really <laughs> remember the Italian way to say this. Uh, Symphonia, number four, in uh, B-flat major for strings and continuo. So this is um, two tracks, but it's actually three movements. Um, the first two movements are on track four. It's got a cheerful opening played by the string ensemble, and it features some melodic figures played by the full ensemble with no soloing. This is a sinfonia. It's not a uh, concerto. No solo instrument here. There's some interesting key changes, like the one at one minute and ten seconds in to keep our ears open. I'm going to try to sample that and see if we can hear that for those of you who are attuned to this sort of thing.
we just build up from there. At 2 minutes and 4 seconds is a connected segue to a brief slow movement uh, with slow quarter note chords bowed out staccato as the legato violin line plays some connecting themes, similar to the concerto actually. I'm wondering if that uh, solo violin is Chandler again or one of the um, musicians in the ensemble. It's not for a solo violin hmm. or solo violinist, but I don't really know. Maybe he'll let us know. At 3 minutes and 12 seconds, there's a surprising, harshly played key change, which leaves us hanging at the end of this movement. Then we get to the third movement, the Allegro. This is track 5. It resolves the end of the second movement. It's interesting writing, and this is pretty sunny, but again, the speed of the Allegro here is on the slow side, the ensemble putting maximum curviness into the themes. Some strong dramatic accents are heard, recalling the brief slow movement, for example, at around a minute and 38 seconds. This is mostly smoothly played, with the dramatic accents breaking up the texture. Tracks 6 through 8, Concerto 5 in C minor for violin, strings, and continuo, and this has a heavy Vivaldi influence according to the um, booklet notes. The first movement, Allegro, starts with a descending solo violin line accompanied by momentary chords in the ensemble. The violin has some demanding lines right away here, and the Vivaldi influence is pretty obvious in the accented ensemble lines that come next, as well as the solo violin writing. This allegro is played with more energy than the first movement of Concerto 4. At a minute and 39 seconds, the track dances as the violin plays a solo figure. I'd like to sample that. Okay, I especially liked this interpretation. Uh, there's a fair amount of excitement built up by the playing on this track. But, of course, what we really get is happiness, sunniness, allegro. The second movement is largo. Dripping quarter note chords accompany the lightly curving serene violin line, though it gets into some minor key darkness as keys change, and nevertheless winds up in a kind of serene space at the cadences despite the minor key. It's a poetic movement. The solo beautifully played, that's track 7. Track 8, movement 3 of Concerto 5, Allegro. This movement is on the slower side of Allegro. There's a bit of detail to the theme. At the 56 second mark, the violin enters for its solo. Brescianello comes up with so many charming turns and themes for the violin that its entry always keeps one alert with anticipation. And of course, that's one of those things where you just have to listen to the whole track to really enjoy it. Track 9 and 10, Symphonia 5 in F major for strings and continuo. Movement 1, Allegro, and then Movement 2, Adagio, are both on the same track. There's a repeating note that's broken away from by whirling approaches to the next repeating note in the theme. A cadence follows, then we hear a repeat of the opening. From there, we get a sudden forte from the violins as new thematic material is presented. This leads us to a section where we hear the opening theme and quickly changing keys. Something new happens at a minute and 27 seconds where the ensemble fins out for some slower melodic material. The opening rhythm comes back and we head to another cadence. At 2 minutes and 39 seconds, there's a sudden segue into the slow movement, which proceeds with a Siciliano rhythm. 
The lilt this inspires in the melodic lines is pleasantly appealing. There's been a harpsichord continuo throughout the album, but I'm noticing it for the first time in this movement, despite the fact that it's discreetly played. It peeks out at the texture at one point, and a gentle cadence is reached at the end. Track 10 is the third movement, Presto, and this has an ebullient quality to it, with its rhythm sharply etched and the ensemble playing heavily accented on the downbeats. It's on the slow side of Presto, Interested in these tempo choices the Chandler is making, as I mentioned, they all work, but an allegro in the first movement will be different than an allegro in the third, as I said, especially in the concertos. There's something very Baroque dance sounding about this movement's main theme. Strongly accented phrases in the bass bring a smile when they're heard. Tracks 11 through 13, concerto 6 in A major for violin, strings, and continuo, also has a heavy Vivaldi influence. The first movement is a slowish allegro with an inviting theme. I get the impression that Chandler interprets these markings strictly as moods and not as speeds, as I mentioned before. The violin solo moves smoothly and appealingly in a steady line, very appealing. I also like how seamless the handoffs between violin and orchestra are. The movement comes across as amiable at this speed. Track 12, second movement, Adagio, is highly Vivaldian, with staccato quarter note repeating chords as accompaniment as the violin ties a melody around them. He seems to really like that sort of slow yeah. quarter note uh, chord sort of rhythm. It kind of sounds like they're posts that the violin is tying a length of melodic string around. Anyway, the uh, third uh, movement, track 13, is allegro. It's a quicker, buoyant allegro than the first movement, and of course, melodically appealing. One does wonder why this music hasn't been performed much, but then again, we've only had 100 years of Vivaldi, which is a relatively short time. It's not as though Vivaldi's music has been being played for 300 years. It was really rediscovered, even after Bach's music. There's a cadenza at the end, one of the earliest to appear in print. It starts at the 3 minute and 9 second mark. Let's hear this historic cadenza, one of the first to appear in print, as I said. I don't know how much longer this is going to go on, so I'm going to have to come out of this. Anyway, you know where to go to hear the whole thing. It sounds uh, kind of um, unusual in this context. I mean, usually not used to hearing like a straight on, you know, almost classical style cadenza in a Baroque movement. Very interesting. Some lovely playing by Chandler. He's got some sparkling lines on his uh, Baroque violin there. And of course, I love the sound of the instrument, not as bright as the modern violin. And it's there's something really charming about that. Tracks 14 through 16. Sinfonia 6 in E-flat major for strings and continuo. First movement, Allegro, is a very Vivaldi-sounding theme, ebullient and direct, appealing throughout. Second movement, Adagio, is a melody-driven theme with the Siciliano rhythm set by bowed cellos. The movement has a nice dip to it on the downbeats, and I would like to sample the opening of this. 
It's nice that those cadences always seem to come like 30 seconds in. It makes it really convenient <laughs> for me. Okay, the form here seems to be A-B, usually, which is what we get in Baroque music. And I like the way the repeat of the B section comes in on the rhythmic wave set by the exposed cellos after the first cadence is reached. The third movement, Allegro Assai, the Assai marking is paid attention to here. Assai means very. It's played at a faster, more ebullient speed and mood than the opening movement. It's got a pleasant flow to it throughout. Tracks 17 through 24, we have a little bit of a departure. The overture in A major for strings and continuo. This overture, it's really a French overture, sort of a bum, ba bum, ba bum rhythm supposed to accompany the king's entrance or some royalty's entrance into a room, followed by a fugue, and then we get a dance, a Baroque dance suite after that. Let's hear the uh, opening theme for the overture marked Largo. So a French overture, it's very musical sounding. And a minute and 12 seconds, the fugue starts. It's got some dotted rhythms in it too, making it sound kind of lumpy when the various voices are heard together. That's the writing, not the playing, okay? So it's <laughs> it's kind of odd to hear that as those kind of dotted rhythms, dun 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 you know, kind of well, combining together in a fugue. Anyway, track 18, this is the second movement, is a gavotte and has a bit of a rustic flavor. The rhythm is dance-like, with the melody just short of legato. Maybe you'd call it tenuto. Track 19, Menuet, and a trio and another menuet. It's lighter and has a lilt to it, as a menuet should. It sounds elegant, and the trio, the middle section, sounds much more rustic, with a droning bass and a more nasal tone from the violins. Track 20, Aria, Allegro, has a dance feel to it, despite its marking. I would think an audio would be a song, but... Maybe I'm not up on my uh, lingo here. Elegantly played here. Track 21, Rondeau, Allegro. This is a dance, lively pointed rhythm, and the tempo is at a speed that makes it possible to dance to, too, which is always nice. Track 22 is an aria marked Allegro. Sounds like a dance, and it's lively with a marked rhythm. Track 23, aria andante, another dance-like rhythm, very appealing, and I'm going to sample this one so that we just get to hear a little bit more of this. Another convenient cadence to come out on. I'm really getting uh, the hang of this now. <laughs> Track 24, Giga. This is the last uh, movement of the overture. It's cast in the guise of a canari, according to the uh, notes, which is a subcategory of the jig, inspired by an indigenous dance and song from the Canary Islands. 
It's played with a strong downbeat and sounds like there's a guitar acting as the continuo, which I haven't noticed throughout the suite. The rhythm drives the whole movement with its full-on approach, and this is a little unusual, so I'm going to want to sample this one too. for the cadence now, but I got to get out of this. This is taking a long time. <laughs> we have one more track. It's a substitute movement for Concerto 4, which we heard as the first three tracks on the album. An alternate slow movement, and um, it was actually written by Vivaldi and arranged by Johann George Pissendel. He added the parts for violins and viola after lifting this from Vivaldi's Concerto and inserting it into Brescianello's Concerto. <laughs> this is <laughs> Vivaldi's RV366, by the way, if you want to find that one. There's a long pause before this starts. I guess it's serving as an encore here. And the violin solo line is highly lyrical, pretty and brief, and it sends us off in good spirits. And really, this whole album has us in good spirits. It's a good yeah. way to start the year. The album isn't going for any fireworks. It's really going for a more joyful and happy mood, I'd say. It's straightforward and stylishly played, something that will appeal to all tastes in Baroque music. It is, in fact, highly appealing throughout, and it sets Brescianello's music in a good light tempos throughout are interesting and in many cases refreshing, as I believe the mood is being paid more attention to than the actual speed, which only partly evokes mood. Chandler is right. We need to hear more of this composer. Energetic rhythms and great string blend that I've kind of come to expect from La Serenissima. Yeah. Brachanel's music is very satisfying, if not very surprising, but there are a lot of contrasts of rhythm, as you pointed out. And plenty of lyrical passages that are quite pretty as well. I thought Chandler's tone is clean. It's a little warmer than the violin we hear in modern instruments. And I like that sound too. And on cadenzas and fast passages, he sounds really effortless and smooth in his playing, really confident, and it flows along. Really great Baroque music here. Okay, moving on, we are going to hear one of my favorite scores in the world, Ravel's ballet, yeah. Daphnis et Chloé. I've seen like performances of this only on YouTube. I'd really like to have like a video or actually see a live performance of this ballet. I just love the music so much. This is performed here by the Symphonia of London Chorus and the Symphonia of London, conducted by John Wilson. Now, they've been putting out so many spectacular uh, recordings on the Chandos label. This is an SACD, and all of John Wilson's recordings have been on SACD, and they have all sounded spectacular. And this one does too, and yeah. I'm going to have something to say about that too. <laughs> this is a ballet, but Ravel thought of the score as a choreographic symphony. Think about that for a minute. Choreographic symphony. Okay, so it's really a piece of music that's for the concert hall that people are dancing to. Right. Okay. And indeed, it plays well as an orchestral work, given its amazing orchestration. Oh, what what a treat for the ears the orchestration is in this score. And Ravel being one of the great uh, orchestrators, whoever lived, really, but uh, in that era of great orchestrators, the early 20th century. 
Here we've got a new edition of the score by John Wilson himself. He um, sort of corrected. There are a lot of apparently errors in the original score, and he corrected a lot of them here. All right, let's get into this. I'm going to have a lot to say about this. It's pretty spectacular, but it doesn't come out across as my all-time favorite recording, despite the uh, spectacular sound and the really great performance, too. So tracks one through eight are going to be the uh, first act. It's marked premier partie. Track one, introduction and dance religieuse. So in the story, a group of girls and youths on the island of Lesbos on a spring afternoon, this is a Greek story, it takes place in ancient Greece, bring gifts to the nymphs whose statues we see on the verge of the wood behind them. The Symphonia of London under John Wilson are able to get these very subtle pianissimi, and that's the case here as well, as elements of the score gradually emerge. There's a wordless choir and some gorgeous modal melodies for the flute and then other woodwinds following. The sensuality of the score is well brought out here by the sensual playing. That's a word I'm probably going to use a lot. Sensual. (laughs) This is a sensual score. A crescendo ensues, and the fortissimo is very loud indeed. There's a wide dynamic range used on this recording. In fact, if you put this on, I'd set the volume low, and if you can't hear it at the beginning, wait. (laughs) Just (laughs) see that when you get to that... uh, that peak in the first movement, you'll be able to set your volume properly and go back and try to set it better. Okay, track two, Dance Religieuse. This is really a continuation of the first Dance Religieuse, except that here, Daphnis, who is a shepherd, and Chloe enter. The strings take over and play a gentle, very sensuous theme, which we'll hear in a moment. The orchestra really delivers with the sound. This leads to several teasing crescendos that don't climax. There's a gorgeous tonic at a minute and 58 seconds, which we're not going to hear. I'm just going to play the beginning. A new theme starts, the introduction of our characters there, and a gradual crescendo ensues, complete with the participation of the wordless choir. And at 3 minutes and 36 seconds, we get another outburst of a climax, complete with booming timpani and complaining neighbors, if you live in a, <laughs> in a neighborhood like I do. Before you sample this, the engineers, this is a pretty spectacular recording, but we don't live in the middle of nowhere here. The, the dynamic range is so wide on this recording that uh, you could wind up you know, blowing your ears out if you said it too loud at the beginning, or so that you can hear the, uh, the very faint pianissimi on this. It all registers beautifully, though, so I, no complaints about the recording itself. Anyway, let's listen to the opening of track two. I just love those sounds. And now it's going to head to a crescendo. I could barely hear that, and yet I had it all maxed out on the the volume. Okay, track three, Vif. This is still part of the, uh, I guess, Dance for Religious. The young girls entice Daphnis and surround him with their dances. A muted trumpet plays a rhythmic fanfare as the girls surround Daphnis. And the rhythm here is measured as though being played for dancers, which is acceptable. It is, after all, a ballet. But in an orchestral performance, I prefer this to be more animated, where dancers aren't involved. This is usually what we get with um, ballets when they're played as a part of a concert. We can hear the teasing by the girls in the orchestral score, and I'm going to play a sample of this, too. 
Yeah, I feel like that's a little too, like, one, two, three, one, two, three. It doesn't really have as much expression as I'd like it to have. That's okay, though. Next, track four, Dance Generale. This is, like, the second part of the movement, of the first part. Dorcon, a cowherd, wants to kiss Chloe, but Daphnis dismisses him. The youths intervene and propose a dance contest. <laughs> How else are we going to solve <laughs> this problem in a ballet? This brief section features beautifully harmonized strings for the most part. At the 54 second mark, we can hear Daphnis' rebuff in the dissonant chord and a little of Dorcon's stiffness in the ensuing melodies. And in fact, Dorcon really, he just doesn't have a chance in this dance contest because he's kind of stiff. We hear track five, Dance Grotesque de Dorcon. Dorcon dances for the privilege of a kiss from Chloe. The music he dances to is uncouth and his movements awkward. A rare example of uncouthness in Ravel's music. It isn't really that uncouth, though, but it's not as smooth and creamy as Ravel's music often is. There's orchestral laughter following, and others mockingly imitate his movements. It's played appropriately heavily here, and it's got a very square beat, emphasizing Dorcon's rigidity when dancing. The bass drum here comes across vividly on the recording, like it's in the room. At a minute and one second, there's a great glissando brass effect mocking Dorcon, and at a minute and 18 seconds, laughter simulation in the strings. It's cute. Track six, Danse Légère et Gracieuse. You know what that means. Gracious, full of grace. De Daphnis, okay? Daphnis dances for the privilege of a kiss from Chloé. His dance is graceful and light, as is the music, which has a rebellion glow to it, and he wins the kiss which leaves him in ecstasy. Yes, how are you not going to win the kiss when Ravel is writing your music for you to dance to? Anyway, let's listen to Daphnis' theme. pause there in between the two parts mm. so we hear the gentle theme in the winds with a harp arpeggio strings and a clear resolution to the tonic all these are really stable things so chloe knows she's in good hands here everything is in place in daphnis's dance the music gets more excitable as daphnis's happiness comes across at two minutes and 24 seconds the dance is over and daphnis wins the kiss dorkon tries to intervene and is laughed at again you can hear that actually in the strings and two minutes and 54 seconds in Daphnis' ecstasy at the kiss is heard, and Ravel and this performance put this across well. There's a crescendo at three minutes and 22 seconds as the wordless chorus comes back to heighten that ecstasy. Track seven, Danse de Lyceon. Lyceon, who is a girl, now tries to seduce Daphnis, because, you know, he's a great dancer. The ladies want to be with him. She fails, but Daphnis is left confused, because, you know, he loves... Chloe, but then this girl is like seducing him. He's feeling feelings. Oh my, what's happening? Anyway, suddenly a band of pirates attacks the island. Oh, I really hate when that happens. And kidnaps Chloe. Daphnis goes to find her, discovers one of her sandals, and in despair curses the powers who have failed to protect her. He falls to the ground unconscious. And I really love the sensual melody that Lysion uses to try to seduce Daphnis. She sounds like my kind of girl. Let's listen to this.
it's the modes. They just leave you all confused and sensual feeling. <laughs> okay, Lysion's dance grows more excitable as it goes on, but always fizzles out after Daphnis's disinterest. At a minute and 30 seconds, sinister sounds like rising winds are heard. This is where the pirates attack. It passes quickly for such a major plot point. There's a growing sense of unease in the music, and at 2 minutes and 14 seconds, we hear Chloe's theme as Daphnis finds the sandal. In the third minute, there's a flute melody, then a distant fanfare and the trumpet. I think that's a trumpet. In the fourth minute, you can hear a wind machine very discreetly recorded here. Track eight is a nocturne and then Danse Lente and Mysterieuse de Nymphes. I love these kind of magical moments in ballets. There are wooden statues of the nymphs on the stage, and then they come to life. They come down from their pedestals and dance. Uh, this is a big thing in especially French culture in the 20th century. Uh, Jean Cocteau had a lot of moving statues in his movies, and it's just sort of a pretension that I really love. So here it is in this uh, ballet as well. The nymphs revive Daphnis and lead him to a huge rock which changes into the image of the god Pan. Now, you remember Pan. He's got like a goat bottom and a human top, and he plays the Pan Pipes, before whom Daphnis prostates himself. So the nymphs dance in the opening nocturne is another very appealing section with a light magical glow to it, indicating the otherworldliness of these creatures. With the wind machine, we hear echoes of Daphnis' theme too. Okay, with tracks 9 through 11, we move to the pirate camp. Track 9 is going to be the introduction, which features a solo women's wordless chorus between scenes, so this would be the scene change. Total darkness descends as the sound of an unaccompanied choir comes from the distance. The scene changes to the camp where the pirates are celebrating their successful raid. A brass fanfare is heard in the distance at 2 minutes and 15 seconds as we near the pirates' camp. Then we get to track 10, Danse Guerriere, or War Dance. The music here explodes in. The pirates celebrate with wild whirling figures, and the rapid repeated notes from the orchestra are impressive in the winds and brass. Let's hear a sample of this. Now, if you find yourself leaning in to hear those um, pianissimi, yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> As I mentioned, the dynamic range on this album is extremely wide. So we have those whirling modal figures. The pirates are a lively bunch. At three minutes, new figures are heard, and the wordless chorus joins in. The pirate chief compels Chloe to dance for him at around three minutes and 50 seconds. Track 11, Danse Suppliante de Chloe, so she's kind of begging him the pirate chief, to let her go. Chloe's attempts to escape are forlorn, and eventually the pirate chief carries her off. But mysterious sounds and apparitions interrupt the festivities, culminating in the terrifying appearance of the god Pan. That happens when you hear the low brass and string glissandos at the end of track 11, at which the pirates run for their lives. So Chloe's dance melody is played by ghostly strings, with the melody played on an English horn. Let's hear this.
but we hear echoes of Daphnis's dance here too, perhaps because she's thinking of him. At 3 minutes and 2 seconds, things start livening up as some desperation comes in the scores. Pan's appearance is at 4 minutes and 45 seconds, and it's pretty ferociously played by the orchestra. There's a wind machine adding to the effect too, and the pirates flee pretty quickly. Okay, third part, track 12, the most magical part of the entire ballet, Le Vert du Jour, which is uh, the daybreak or sunrise. It's really famous, this theme. It's also in the Daphnis et Chloé suite. The opening flutes that you hear are supposed to be the murmur of rivulets collected by the dew, which trickle down from the rocks. And the shepherds have found Chloe with the help of Pan. They wake Daphnis, and the pair are reunited in this track. Okay, so the gorgeous flute sequence, it doesn't start at the beginning of this track. It starts 23 seconds in. The end of the previous scene overlaps into this track. I'm wondering why they did that. It's played very fast and at a distance, which makes it sound more like the rivulets it's evoking, so it's really good. But it takes away some of the sensuality for me. The pacing of the crescendo is quick, and I feel it doesn't impact as much as it could, but that's not Davis's aim here. He's more interested in tracing the lines of the structure and melodies, and things seem to happen quickly. Let's hear this. I love this theme so much. It's so beautiful. And again, if you find yourself leaning in to hear that, I had the volume boosted to maximum. It's really distantly recorded. Now, one of the things I love most about that passage is the sound of the breathiness of the, the flutes. And they're kind of arranged so that there's little bursts of breath in them that make that sound. And in other recordings, you hear that much more closely. And it's also a lot slower, so you can really enjoy the quality of that sound. Here, we're more into the line. So this is one of the things that I prefer other recordings for. But if you liked that, go for it. It's, I, I liked it as well, but I just prefer hearing those flutes more close up. At 2 minutes and 48 seconds, when the flutes and opening theme of this section come back, they don't register as obviously as they do in other performances, but you do notice them. The sound on this recording is sumptuous, yet I prefer other performances of this section to this one. Uh, that said, you can't go wrong with this. It's pretty great. There's a huge climax at 4 minutes and 50 seconds. At uh, the 5 minute and 23 second mark, the theme changes, setting up the upcoming pantomime, and that's in track 13. And in this um, case, um, Daphnis and Chloe are reunited, and they dance a pantomime of Pan's love for the nymph Syrinx as a thank you, since he helped them get together again. Yeah. By the way, I want to mention, usually in these kinds of stories, the man will go and rescue the woman or things like that. That doesn't happen in this ballet. <laughs> Daphne's falls unconscious and the god has to go and help Chloe get back. <laughs> but she still digs him for some reason. Anyway, 
So they dance a pantomime of Pan and Syrinx's love, and uh, that particular story, I don't know if you know it, didn't end well <laughs> for, <laughs> for either one of these people. Syrinx was a follower of Artemis, known for her chastity, and she tried to escape Pan, who uh, was after her. She ran to the river's edge, asked for the assistance from the river nymphs, and was transformed into hollow water reeds that made a haunting sound when Pan's breath blew across them. So Pan cut the reeds to fashion the first set of Pan pipes. So that's the story of Pan and oh, Syrinx. Right. Yeah, that's from Ovid's Metamorphosis, and it's in other sources as well. Fittingly, there are a lot of reed instruments in the opening theme. At a minute and 36 uh, seconds, we hear a modal flute theme, again, fittingly, given the theme. Syrinx will eventually become the Pan Pipes, so this theme evokes her. So that's Syrinx before she's uh, being bothered by Pan. She's kind of in a good mood there. But in the third minute, the flute starts trilling with a bit of anxiety as Syrinx attempts to evade Pan. At four minutes and two seconds, the descending flute figure represents her transformation. Pretty interesting orchestral evocation of that. The pantomime ends at five minutes and 25 seconds, and so with the return of the opening dawn music. A grand statement of the opening of the entire ballet follows, setting up for the general dance. Dance General Bacchanal. This is a joyous tumult, leads to the final general dance, and we hear bars of 3-4 and 5-4, and finally they resolve into 2-4. Let's hear this as a sample before I start talking about it. starts. The rhythm is captured with some excitement, and the Symphonia of London's playing is accurate, swift, and smooth. This is really impressive. Uh, Wilson whips up some rhythmic excitement here. The build-up to the end has fantastic energy, and the last chord is guaranteed to bring an audience to its feet. So, this is a real feat of engineering with a wide dynamic range, maybe too much of one. The sound engineer was Ralph Cousins, assistant engineer Alexander James, and recording producer Brian Pigeon. It's recorded in glorious uh, 96 kilohertz on SACD, and you also get surround if you have capabilities for that. The format serves this recording well. The performance is good throughout, with some sections seeming measured, like on track 3, and rhythmically expressive and vivid at others, like the Danse Generale in track 14. I personally felt that the daybreak sequence was underplayed, but the recording picks up a lot of orchestral nuance there and throughout. 
It's an excellent recording, particularly in its sound, both that produced by the Symphony of London and captured by the engineers. It's a recording I'll certainly return to, but there are others I prefer, and I can't remember the orchestra, but the one that Pierre Boulez um, conducted for um, Deutsche Grammophon is really one of my favorite ones. I think that came out in the 2000s or the late 1990s, in case you want to try something else. I found it very atmospheric and scene-evoking. I was seeing all sort of little things dancing around in my brain as I was listening to it. Particularly the wordless chorus catches your attention when it comes in. You know, that's kind of like a tide of sound. You can imagine dancing, as I said. There's lush harmonies, great contrasts of soft passages, and then huge swells or strings and brass and percussion interjections. The performance by the Symphonia of London seems to draw out all of the mood and tempo changes very well, and the sonics are super clear. You can hear everything, but you will need a quiet environment to hear the very soft passages, because as Mike pointed out, the dynamic contrast is great. And finally, for tonight, our third recording is by a composer who is new to me, but not a contemporary composer, Helvi Leviska. She's a Finnish She was born in 1902, died in 1982, so she's a 20th century composer that I'm pretty sure you've never heard of. I certainly hadn't before this recording. Mm. This is called Orchestral Works Volume 1, performed by the Lati Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Dalia Stasevska, who is also Finnish, and she was born in 1984 in the Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union. Okay. This is on Beasts, and it's also an SACD. So uh, if you have good equipment, then you're going to buy these CDs. Um, you're in for a real treat here. Levi Ska was a theosophist and wanted her music to reflect her worldview. All right, now, if we mm. remember what theosophy was, it was a movement at the beginning of the 20th century, a group of people who wanted to bring all of the world's religions together into one, like, super religion so that, it was, so that they'd have, like, just the ultimate wisdom. Madame Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky, uh, right. right, And uh, if you remember Krishnamurti, who was really the most sensible of them and the reason why they kind of fell apart because he claimed that there was no religion you should follow. We read a lot of uh, Krishnamurti in college, I remember. Not in classes, but (laughs) on our own. (laughs) I think that's where the real education happened, like when you're in your dorm room. You'd be listening to music and then reading books like that. But he kind of brought the whole movement crashing down, I think, by leaving it, (laughs) basically, and going around the world explaining his philosophy. Anyway, I don't know how this um, (laughs) reflects her worldview. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't. I'd like to read more about this, but let's talk about the music. The first piece on this album is called Sinfonia Brevis, Opus 30, and it was composed in 1962. And actually, this was the one I liked the most on the album. I think Hmm. Russ had liked the next piece better. Yeah, I liked the sweet best, yeah. I liked this one. Anyway, let's see. It starts with quiet, warm strings building up, and there are winds in there filling out the harmony, and eventually a bassoon takes over a counter theme as the strings keep wandering. The string sound is lush, warm, and expansive. A flute starts making atmospheric bird sounds as the strings build to a climax that is abandoned at a minute and 45 seconds as a fugal theme begins in the cellos and is taken up by the violins in answer. By the middle of the second minute, another climax is built to, constantly interrupted or suspended, as more orchestral details come into focus. It's as though sections of the orchestra all want to have their say before any climax is reached. And I'm wondering if that has to do with the theosophy thing, where they're just hmm, these different religions stating their, their truth, and let's, you know, then we're moving yeah. on to another one. I don't know. 
By 3 minutes and 30 seconds, we're into another quieter section, another byway, away from the intended climax. This features winds and some brass. The strings accompanied by harp go into a serene passage in the fourth minute. And by the five-minute mark, something more excitable rhythmically emerges. So let's hear that part. here, especially at the end where I was fading out, there's a lot of um, upward movement moving towards some kind of uh, approach to right, a tonic yeah. that never seems to be reached. Uh, different combinations of the orchestra continue to intrude on others, and you heard the beginning of that, with new themes, and in the eighth minute, there's a great counterpoint of various themes all conversing among themselves. Okay, theosophy, perhaps. At 9 minutes and 22 seconds, a bold passage starts moving resolutely forward, but a more lyrical passage in the brass at 9 minutes and 30 seconds interrupts that. At 10 minutes and 13 seconds, another climax buildup is in motion, with the bass digging in on a single repeated note, insisting on that harmony. The whole orchestra is now pulled along as if by some tide. At the 11-minute mark, there's a sort of mini-climax, but there's still more to be resolved. This work is really, to me, a study in built-up tension, much like uh, Sibelius' Seventh Symphony. It's only being gradually let go in this long sustained forte in the last minute. It sounds like there's a brief key change at the 12th minute, then a change into the climax as though the orchestra needs to be tricked into the end of the work. The work ends serenely, it's very compelling, and is an excellent introduction to the composer. Now I'm reading all these theosophy things in there because I'm looking for some kind of, uh, you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of um, template to kind of figure out what might be happening but that's not necessarily there so just you know don't mind me listen to the the music itself anyway tracks two through five orchestral suite number two opus 11 the music in this suite was originally composed for a film i don't know what film it is i don't actually have the cd for this one so I, the, the booklet note probably said that i had to do my research on the internet track two this is the first movement called the coming of spring in finnish however you would say that it has an atmospheric light string opening with the clarinet playing the opening melody over the strings. At 2 minutes and 3 seconds is a big boned theme, not quite Hollywood, but one that we would associate with film. Let's uh, hear a sample of that. I really love those odd harmonic changes that lead to a new section. You know, she'll just kind of swerve into it. Yeah. Melodic material in the strings follows as the rhythm and accompanimental background changes from moment to moment. The strings are warmly arranged in this work, and the music falls on the ear pleasantly, and with some drama as well. At 4 minutes and 42 seconds, there's a sudden desire to build up to a climax, which, as in the Symphonia Brevis, is rather sustained with lots of teasing detours. Finally, at the six-minute mark, a melodic theme comes in and rather calmly leads us to the end. 
This movement nonchalantly ends on the last note of the melody. Second movement, track three, humoresque. Bold timpani accent the melody that opens this movement. It sounds rather brusque and is melodically and harmonically appealing. Again, it's big bones as befits the big screen. A folk-like rhythm is settled into at the 54 second mark, interrupted by some honking low woodwind, which is a sound I really love. This movement features a lot of quick changes as well. It's light and bubbly by the end, and ends on a sudden crescendo to an accented chord. Third movement, track four, Lullaby. This starts with the strings. There's a nice wavering figure in the bass, and as the woodwinds play strands of melody, the violins provide the theme, trading with the woodwinds, at a minute and 35 seconds or so, a pleasant wind melody sets a whole romantic chain of elements in motion, with the violins responding warmly. The theme eventually winds down to end the movement. Last movement, movement four, track five, epilogue. An ominous static harmony starts this movement as woodwinds play melodic fragments. There's a lightly pounding tympanum as well. The strings come over, an accented pizzicato in the bass for a theme, then there's a romantic, harmonized wash of melody in the strings. The ominous tone is maintained, and in the second minute, tension ratchets up, only to be sidetracked by an attractive string melody at 2 minutes and 40 seconds or so. At 3 minutes and 44 seconds, we reach more of a swashbuckling theme that climaxes to some histrionic harmonies and emphatic percussion. Let's hear a little bit of that. some real drama happening. Yeah. Be a kind of cool thing to see in the movie. At five minutes and 30 seconds, there's a roiling buildup of tension released into an ostinato rhythm in the bass as the winds and brass play sustained chords. The movement does a natural fade and just leaves us hanging harmonically. It doesn't resolve, and that's the end of the piece. <laughs> Why did they do that to me? Anyway, there you go. Track six through eight are Symphony Number no. Two, Opus Twenty Seven, composed in 1954. So this is an earlier work than the Symphonia Brevis, and the orchestral suite. I don't have a year on that. Levi Scott considered the symphony to be the highest manifestation of music, so this would be the most important work on this album, I guess, or what she really wanted to say in her musical language. Track six is Movement One, Andantino Quasi Allegretto, moving to Più Animato e Ritmico. This starts rather forlornly in the woodwinds with some slightly harsh harmonies. The sustained use of the bassoon as a pedal point draws me in. I like the sound of that instrument, as we all know, if we listen to this podcast. The opening includes a lot of nasal sounds from the reeds. This all snaps into a contrasting string theme that's more big-boned in tone, but fragmentary, looking for a direction. Brass are next with a sort of fanfare at a minute and 28 seconds. There's also a lot to keep in mind by this point as separate musical arguments seem to be being made. A build-up leads to a pretty theme at around the 2 minute and 20 second mark in the winds. Okay, I want to see if I can find this. Thank you. 
Okay, now you have all these contrasting sections that we just kind of fall into. And I think if she really is trying to communicate the theosophy and the works, you could actually think about it as different sort of religious ideas, all trying to find some sort of answer, mm. you know, or some unity or something like that. It's one way to think about it, but there are others, of course. The movement has a lot of lines reaching for resolution, but not getting there, being subverted by an interrupting theme. Brass get a brief section at the four-minute mark. Their theme is shared by the winds as the strings play a different theme over the whole thing. A calming sustained chord ends at five minutes and 28 seconds and leads to a familiar leaping wind theme. We reach a calm-sounding resolve at the end, but there's still tension here. The middle movement, Allegro Molto, has a rushing rhythm leading to a buildup that doesn't reach its climax. Let's sample that. sure we heard that abandoned climax there <laughs> we, we thought we were going to reach but really didn't by the first minute we do reach a new theme and these themes keep coming at us there's a lot to handle in this work there's an interesting build up to a climax that sort of takes a sideways harmonic step to introduce a new theme and key at around a minute and 45 seconds there's more of this as we step between full orchestral buildups and tittering light woodwind sections in this work Le Viscas seems to often separate her themes between sections of the orchestra rather than having them blend, although they do blend at times, but often when their themes are in conflict. The music will often surge forward and then settle on something else along the way. At 6 minutes and 20 seconds, there's a pounding on a single chord that sounds like it wants to resolve, but is ferociously held back from its goal, and then dissipates at that harmonic point. Let's hear that. That's kind of an exciting bit of this uh, movement. goes on for a bit. Uh, it settles in eventually into a forlorn section with low reeds and strings, almost a funeral march. The theme dissolves with only a thumping bass heard at the end. And the last movement is marked Andante Cantabile, which is an interesting marking for a final movement. Yeah. You usually don't get a slow movement as your final movement. It starts with bird-like flutes in the theme accompanied by harp and reeds, so very pretty. Let's uh, sample that. Thank you. 
pretty, but forlorn. Strings come in with an accompanying theme and I just faded as they were coming in. It's rather pleasant, but annoyingly broken up. We can't settle into it. Once again, there's a harmonic stuckness to this music, as though its forward motion is bogged down by some kind of unforeseen weight. The music progresses slowly from key to key in the third minute, and is suddenly interrupted by a pause and a new theme in the fourth minute. I don't want to make it sound like I've uncovered her technique here. It all leads to something, and I haven't heard enough to figure out what it is yet. I'm just trying to get an idea of what I think her approach is, so keep that in mind. There are quite a few melodic episodes passed through after that. In the sixth minute, we're back to the opening orchestration of the movement with the flute and harp and strings playing a counter melody. This build up to a more densely orchestrated approach to a climax with harmonic changes coming slowly and with fair subtlety. All of this falls away to a muted trumpet theme that hands off to the opening flute at the end, playing alone, with occasional light high string chords. By the end, we haven't gone anywhere, but we've experienced something. We're back to the beginning, but it doesn't feel the same. And deciding what has changed will take me a few more listens. <laughs> Still, this was an interesting listen, a bit on the heavy side, but not hard on the ears at all. Well, fans of the spaciousness and woodsiness of finished music absolutely shouldn't hesitate. All of those elements we're familiar with from Sibelius and really other Finnish composers are here too. It's like it's in the Finnish classical music DNA. Levi Scott seems to delight in the delayed climax, which is what Symphonia Brevis seems to be about. Symphony 2 also features a lot of subverted climaxes. The orchestral suite is lighter in tone, more visual, providing some respite before the symphony, which is the heaviest work, though it comes across as austerely scored and fragmentary. It's about its juxtapositions and frustrated climaxes, and perhaps it's about her theosophical kind of like experience as well. I'm kind of interested to know more about her thoughts on that. Perhaps it's just about the harmonic and thematic byways it finds on the way to climaxes. I'll need to hear more of Levi Scott's music to really figure out what she's all about, and that's something I'm willing to do, given the evidence here. I should say something about Stasevska's conducting. Uh, she seems to have a good grip on what this music is about, and makes those harmonic stuck points and detours register for the listener in Symphony No. 2. Her interpretation of Levi Scott's music is sympathetic. She's a good guide to this music, which is new to me, the, the music itself. It registered vividly, and this is another forgotten 20th century composer that needs a revival. There was a whole repertoire of tonal compositions being composed during the big bad 20th century <laughs> For that sure. simply weren't heard or were quickly shelved because they weren't atonal. And Levi Scott's compositions were apparently among them. She's also a woman composer, and people like to point that out too, that you know, women composers didn't get much of a hearing at the time, especially after they died. Another thing could be just her theosophical interest, which kind of went away, you know, right. as far as a world thing, too. So she's really got three things working against her as far as her music being heard. But it may be time now, now that this is all history, we can really listen to this music and appreciate it. Given the evidence here, though, her music's revival is welcome. Listen and hear for yourself, and I really want to hear more and know what this composer was about, because maybe it'll shed some light in my whole um, reading on uh, theosophy when I was in college. I was pretty interested in that whole movement as just a historical thing. There's some pretty fantastic stories that go along with that. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. Anyway, I didn't know any of that background. <laughs> I was just kind of happy to find a new composer, and I enjoyed this a lot. 
like you say, it has all the hallmarks that we've come to identify with Finnish music in terms of the tones and use of the orchestra. I thought the Symphonia and Symphony 2 are very mercurial, but tonally <laughs> rich. A good word. <laughs> yeah, they're unpredictable. As you say, you're not sure where it's going. That keeps it exciting, but it's, you know, it's unpredictable, but easy to follow. You figure out, oh, okay, I see now, but that wasn't what I think was going to happen. I enjoyed the orchestral suite number two, most of all, because of the strong melodies. As you say, it's got that cinematic connection and particularly the beautiful woodwind parts. I just thought that her writing for woodwinds, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and flute, it just keeps coming back in all these lines that are really beautiful. And so that kind of beautiful tonal nature was what was most attractive to me in her music. Okay, and there we go. Classical music for the second week of uh, 2024. What do you got in jazz over there, Russ? All right, get your passports out for our first full episode of Hungarian Jazz. Okay, this is our first episode of Hungarian Jazz. Full episode of Hungarian Jazz. We've done a few recordings of Hungarian musicians, and one of those is going to be uh, pretty key to actually solving okay. some of the problems of this episode. But, you know, we've done, you know, different country episodes. Of course, we've had It's All Greek to Me. We've had Italian Explosion. We had all of the uh, French Me Baby and French Me Again. We could have easily done an all-Hungarian episode of classical music, yeah, too, sure. but I didn't have that at the beginning of the year, so... Anyway, I usually find on my list, you know, have one or two from Hungary or various countries, but I had a lot of Hungarian recordings and I said, hey, why not? Let's just do an episode and see what's going on in Hungary. And I thought it would be another great opportunity for me to have some horrible pronunciation of a foreign language. <laughs> oh, like we that's usually what we're do, all about so. here on adult music, isn't it? That's right. Anyway, it turned out that it's all really great music and I think you're going to like this. You're going to see that... What's going on in Hungary is right up there with what's coming out anywhere else in the world with some cool jazz. All right, we're going to start out with a young saxophonist, Armin Jamborm, and his new recording, Absence. This came out on December 8th. Jamborm studied at the University of Music in Graz, Austria. And when I found this recording... There are no notes or anything online. <laughs> and, uh, Can I just ask, what good is the internet? All right. Everything I want to find on it isn't there. I don't understand yeah. it. And I could see some information he had on his Facebook page, but because, uh, I don't know, I, I couldn't send him an instant message on Facebook. So I thought, oh, man. And I noticed he was friends with Peter Garfesh, a pianist who we had discussed before in one of our earlier episodes. That was his recording, Reaching North. That goes all the way back to episode 54, 2022, Pianorama. And I had a few exchanges with Garfash, so I wrote to him and I said, hey, I see your you know, friends with this guy. Do you have a contact for him? And he said, not only did I study with him, but he was my roommate when I was <laughs> studying in Austria. So yeah, we're good friends. So he got me his contact and I was able to get all the information I needed for the recording. So his previous release from 2021 was called Crazier Out There. And interestingly, if you like this album, also go onto YouTube. There's a making of little mini documentary of the recording, which was recorded in just two days. And also an English interview where he talks about what jazz means to him and how he sees himself in that tradition. It's pretty interesting. So we've got Armin Yambor, tenor sax, soprano sax, flute, the arrangements here and the original compositions. On guitar, we've got Konstantinos Borvaris. On bass, Tobias Melcher. On piano, 
Anil Bilgan, I believe he's Turkish, and Andreas Reisenhofer on drums. So we got a little international collaboration going on here. The recording was mixed by Zoltan Zana and mastered by Martin Finveshi, sound engineer Fabian Sporlin. We're going to start with a very interestingly titled tune, Hey, Delivery Boy. <laughs> I got to say, that title made me go right for this album as the first one that right. I listened to this week. So, And this is a Yambor original, a funny title, and a fun start with a bit of a boogaloo beat here, Mike. Oh, yeah. Love that. A great groove and a 20-measure repeating melody that has cool breaks in the fifth and tenth measures, along with some unexpected chords. Let's hear this get going. that the Europeans are bringing the boogaloo back. Yeah, it's a good old 60s thing that we don't hear enough of today. Well, from there, at the end of the melody, Yambor continues on for his first solo, meandering rising staccato lines into some double-time licks with a full dusky tone. We hear some of that coming up. Borvaris gets a guitar solo next with some nasty bends and rock and blues touches in there. Another round of the melody and some sassy sax and guitar trades before they join up on the final line. Track two, some interesting cover choices, I should say, on this recording. And here's one, Sandman's Coming, a Randy Newman tune from his 1995 recording, Randy Newman's Faust. Here, a piano opening, much like the original from Bilgan, and then Yambor takes the melody, but they give it a steady rock beat compared to the original, which has more of a ballad feel. Bravaris works unison lines on the next melody section for a thick effect, and Melcher is out first for an extended bass solo on this one with a deep tone and a good groove. The descending piano riff that we hear before returns to break things up, and Yambora is next for a melodic solo with some mixed-up articulation, so let's hear some of his playing once he gets going. Mm-hmm. 
Really connects it back to the melody there, working in step with Melcher to the end. An interesting tune choice. Track three is another one of Yambo's originals, Family Nest. This one's an interesting 6-8 feeling tune with a lot of rhythmic play. The intro gets going with some syncopated interval ideas on piano. Guitar joins in and it builds up with bass and finally drums and a final sax phrase before the main 24 measure melody idea. Let's hear it. piano intro idea returns with guitar interplay and Yambor floating on top into a solo. His phrasing has that nice kind of skating feel that you can get over this kind of 6-8 groove. And Bilgan has a piano solo here as well, so let's hear some of his playing a little bit later in the tune. Pickup phrase into the main melody returns for another skate through the melody and an outro that matches the intro with Yambor joining in on the end to build it up. Track four, Burt Bacharach's Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. For our generation, they'll always be <laughs> associated with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the movie, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Ah, falling piano raindrops and ringing rising bass set the atmosphere for Yambor to come in with the melody. Everyone knows this one. It's got him working up high on the tenor, but his tone is sweet and clear. They keep the falling raindrop idea working for an interlude. Borbaris has washed off the rocky raunch we heard on the Delivery Boy tune and has a warm and fluid tone on this one for a nice solo. Yambor returns for a solo with a lot of intensity working into the upper register. The piano and bass bring things back to the melody mood for Yambor to get light and sweet on a final round until the piano rain stops falling. It's a nice arrangement with a lot of contrast. Now the title track, Yambor's original absence, number five, it has a longing and haunting quality to it. Yambor introduces a solo riff for four measures that then gets picked up for another round of piano and then again with bass and drums. 
The main melody is 32 measures made of similar halves. It's soft and lyrical in its sax lines. Let's hear it get going. gets into his solo, then Reisenhofer gets a sense of weight into the groove, and Biran adds doses of modal harmony ideas to inspire Yambor to take some scenic harmonic diversions. Let's hear the climax of that solo a little bit later in the tune. solos from there, starting with delicate sense of touch, balanced out with insistent chords and some rippling lines. Milcher has a bass solo too. Piano gets a section of the rhythmic opening riff to bring Yambor back on the melody, and he gets a soft cadenza going down low to end things up. Track 6, a Michel Legrand tune, I Was Born in Love With You. This is the theme from the 1970 movie Wuthering Heights. We've got a lot of themes from the late 60s and uh, 70s for such a young player. Uh, By the way, you can hear a jazzier version of it on Michelle Legrand's 1982 recording, After the Rain. Melcher starts it out with a plodding bass ostinato, and bass and drums are in with a heavy 6-8 groove and a kind of modal treatment. I was surprised. Interestingly, Yambora has made a little sax arrangement with extra tracks using both soprano and tenor. So let's hear a little bit of that arranging after it gets going.
Allen gets the solo first, bringing out some McCoy Tyner kind of flavors there. Yambor solos on tenor sax, fluid phrasing and exploring harmonic tensions. He brings it back to the melody and then launches into some more final navigating before it finishes up over a softening rhythm section vamp. Track 7, Walpurgisnacht. I guess this is St. Walpurgis Night. A German celebration uh, goes back to the 8th century, I think, celebrated on the night of April 30th and May 1st. Another unique twist here, starting out with a minor bass ostinato, some affected guitar fading in, and a flute part from Yambor, all creating an eerie atmosphere. Yambor has tenor and soprano sax lines weave in before taking the main melody on soprano. Let's hear this get unfolded a little bit. It's a little haunting. The arrangement is interesting with some tight harmonies made for his woodwinds. And Borvara's solos first on guitar here, so let's hear some of his playing. We haven't checked out his solo yet. fluid playing there. Yambor follows with a tenor solo, working up a slow burn, and Bilgan has a go on piano as well here, but the rhythm dissipates to end his solo with a reset to the bass ostinato and guitar intro into the flute and melody on tenor sax, finishing just over the bass quietly. Track 8, Sonic, another Yambor original, back to meat and potatoes here with a hard bopping tune. It's basically a very altered 12-bar minor blues with very interesting syncopated hits changing up to bass walking swing from the eighth measure. A tricky and neat melody. They go around twice and Bravaris launches into a solo. Let's hear this one get going. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Uyambor follows and he has a lot of rhythmic ideas bouncing around in his solo lines on this one. Guitar and sax get some trades with Reisenhofer's drums before a final run of the melody. And the recording ends up with the final Yambor original simple, and it ends in high spirits on a swinging boppy number. It's simple and familiar in that it's a 16-measure harmonic sequence that's repeated, and the rhythm section starts it out going round and round with improvisations from Bill Gamm. Guitar and sax come in on a melody line, with Boris splitting off for some fills into a solo break for Yambor. And let's hear his sax one more time on this last track. has a guitar solo with speedy licks as well, and Yambor returns for some melody lines and some branching out with Boraris to bring it to an energetic ending with a fun final break. While Yambor has a distinctive tenor tone and well-developed solos, his playing and compositions are tied closely to the jazz tradition. He's made a program here with a lot of variety, Randy Newman, Burt Bacharach, and Michelle Legrand balancing out originals that cover bop, hard bop, and modal ideas. There are lots of different grooves and rhythms explored too, with hard swinging, heavy 6-8 beats, and more even beat feels. Vagan and Bovaris impress with inventive solos too. There's plenty to dig your ears into on this recording. Yeah, in fact, of the three uh, jazz recordings we had this week, I liked them all, but this was for me the most immediately appealing. Hmm. It had this uh, mainstream, laid-back, and rather sunny feel to it for the most of it. Though I wouldn't go as far as calling it cheerful. It's rather like a thoughtful kind of, you know, sunniness, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yambur has a, he's got a beautifully, beautiful, breathy, smooth tone that's a pleasure to listen to. So every time he came in, I was always sort of um, yeah, yeah. riveted to that. Uh, familiar tunes like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, he departs into something bright and positive in his solo. And I rather liked his uh, takes on the music during his solos. He stretches out the most on Walpurgis Nacht but uh, keeps his soloing mostly melodic for the rest. The piano playing is light tone throughout, and uh, preferring to play in the upper end of the instrument's range, which I found interesting too. It's certainly attractive playing, and the whole album is attractive and makes for a good evening yeah. listen, I thought. And it left us with a good kind of groove in our step there at the end. I really liked the last two tracks a lot. It was a good way to, to end. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. Be looking yeah. for what he does next. All right, the next recording is by the Zoltan Kalmar Quartet. It's called Living Legacy on Tom Tom Records. came out December 15th. Now, Kalmar was born in 1976. He started to learn classical percussion first at the age of 14, and he started playing jazz for the first time in the year 2001. 
He came to Budapest in 2008 and he made his own trio. And then from 2015, his quartet that we hear here with a few guests. And this was one I wanted to have the full credits for. And uh, luckily, I wrote him an email and uh, Zoltan Kamar replied to me with everything I needed to know. So thanks very much for that. So Zoltan Kamar on drums, Balaj Robotsky on alto saxophone, Yabor Cheke on piano. On bass, we have Josef Horvat Baratza. On trumpet, Cornel Fekete Kovac. And a guest vocal from Linda Kovac on one track. The recording is going to start out with Mango Santa Maria's Afro Blue. All jazz fans will know this tune from 1959 when he was playing with the Cal Jader Sextet. This was one of the first kind of jazz standards built around an African 3-2 hemiola cross rhythm kind of feel. Here, they give it a long rhythm section opening. You may recognize the groove in the bass line. Cheke has some nice meandering piano improvisations and then hints at the melody at about 45 seconds before some runs and ripples and modal explorations. The horns are in from about a minute and a half and they're given a nice arrangement with a piano solo breaking it up. Let's take a listen from the point where the horns come in. some nice change-ups of groove from the rhythm section along the way there. Robotsky is off for a sax solo from there, modal and harmonically explorative with some nice rhythmic licks too. And the rhythm dissipates and Kovac is up next. Sounds like on flugelhorn and some really free ideas. Kalmar slowly builds up the groove again and the piano and bass match with more rhythmic ideas. It's a long solo, but Kovac is full of ideas, connecting back to the first part of the melody which he takes alone. After the piano solo break, Robotsky is back to finish out the horn lines to some final improvised lines from Kovac. Track 2, a Barza original, Ogre. It's called Ogre, but it's not ugly at all. There's kind <laughs> of a gently swinging 5-8 beat traced in Kamar's cymbals with a nice descending bass interval to help you feel it. Cheke gets to play a sensitively touched piano opening over that for 16 measures. The horns come in with a flowing melody, sometimes in unison and sometimes splitting off. There's a repeating 8-measure A section, then a 14-measure contrasting B section. Robotsky is up first for a sax solo, nice unhurried phrasing, and Kovac is next. Let's check him out on this tune.
nice double time licks in there and a little staccato articulation to mix things up. Barzo follows on bass with a ringing tone reaching up high and Cheke takes over on piano with some interesting rhythmic figures and turns in his lines. The horns are back with the melody and some final phrase repeats to finish it up. Track three is Wayne Shorter's Yes or No. This is from 1965's Juju album. This tune already has an interesting structure. It's an A-A-B-A form, but the A sections are 14 measures, eight of straight Latin beat, and then six of swing. The B section stays swinging for 16 measures, but here they've given it a dreamy rubato intro of horn lines over piano trickles and cymbals before it kicks into tempo. So let's hear this interesting beginning. Robotsky is up first for a sax solo, swinging hard over the sections. I really like his tone. Kovach follows with good agility and excitement on trumpet, and Cheke gets a piano solo too, with well-connected lines into punchier two-handed chord figures at times. And Kalmar takes a drum solo on this one, focusing on finesse and tone, so let's hear the leader do a little bit of work later on. Back in with the melody there for another round to wrap it up with some final flurries and trills from Kovach. Track four is a Kovach original, Stan Alone, a very slow ballad with a rubato start of flugelhorn and piano. The two go on with the melody for about almost two minutes before Kamar gets it into tempo with brushes and Robotsky takes over with very gentle playing. Kovach joining him on the end of a phrase. It seems to be about a 20 measure melody based on the intro. That's really rubato though and then the sax line. Then there's a new transition section into a piano solo from Cheke and let's hear some of his very gentle playing on this tune.
Kovac returns with some improvisations into a final melody line joined by Robotsky and some light piano from Cheke. Track five, Miles Davis, but not as you normally know it, four in parentheses or more. So the original was recorded in 1956 and released in 1960. Kamar gets it started with an eight-measure intro, just like Philly Joe Jones did on the original recording. The or more seems to be the five beats in some measures after the ninth bar, and also in the second half of the melody. It's kind of a neat change-up. Uh, jazz fans will know this tune, so start your counting and check this version out. is having a run at it there and if you're listening closely you'll see they keep that up during the solo so you better be on your toes uh, to uh, know where you are. Robotsky and Chike also get spirited solos once more around the melody takes it out. Track six one of my favorite trumpeters and composers Tom Harrell's Moon Alley. This is from his 1985 recording with Kenny Barron and Kenny Garrett. It's a great one. It's got that kind of 60s jazz spirit to it. This is a 32-measure AABA tune with some nice modal harmony touches. The horns come in right away on the original, but here they let the rhythm section take it around once with a nice Latin-y bass pulse and some ringing piano from Cheke. Flugelhorn and sax with Kamar's light drumming keep the original atmosphere nicely. Kovac solos first, building a lyrical solo with good phrasing and connection like Tom Harrell would. Robotsky picks up on his final phrase idea and has a lyrical solo as well. He gets some soft backing lines from Kovac on the way. And Barza has a great toned melodic bass solo on this one, so let's hear what he's doing. back from there with the melody to wrap it up. Track 7 is a Robotsky original, leaving the playground. 
This is a tricky melody tune, an altered chord 12-bar blues with an 8-measure bridge, so it's twice around the 12-bar form piano bridge and then once more around the form. Let's hear it get started. melody there. You hear Kovacs getting started on his solo. The solos keep the same pattern, Kamar and Barzo switching up the beat to Latin on the bridge sections. Robotsky solos next and gets to float over just the drums to start out before piano and bass are back. Cheke gets a go too with some interesting jumpy lines and Barzo and Kamar trade choruses with bass and drum solos before they finish it up with a couple more times around the 12 bar blues. And the final track, a Kamar original, Come With Me, and this is a live recording, a cool solo bass intro from Barza with harmonics and forward motion into a steady ostinato that brings in Linda Kovac on vocals on the minor melody over just the bass for a while before the rest of the rhythm section is in with an even 3-4 Latin groove. Let's hear it from the ostinato at about 37 seconds in. Stop counting the days. Come with me. Dark and cold, we're gonna walk this road again. She gets some flugelhorn backing along the way and then gets into some scat improvisations. There's an extended lyrical flugelhorn solo before she's back with another verse and some more flugelhorn backing to the end and the crowd shows their approval to end up the recording. This is right in the post-bop pocket that can never go wrong with the right recipe and they have that here. We've got nods to the tradition with Santa Maria's Afro Blue, Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, and Tom Harrell compositions with original arrangements and sometimes neat little tricks like on four or more. That's rounded out with originals from the various musicians here. The solos are solid all the way around from Kovach, 
Robotsky and Chekes especially, Kamar isn't a show-off drummer. He can sometimes even disappear so that you have to actively listen carefully to his subtle textures keeping things in the groove, and his solos show attention to the tones of his drums. An enjoyable recording that stands up to music coming from anywhere else in the world. You know, the mix of musical personalities on this album was what really drew me in. Um, hmm. All the solos are pretty individual sounding. I really like the uh, mind meld that the trumpet and piano manage in their individual solos in Yes and No, and again in Four or More. I could talk about every track's individuality of approach in the solos. Hmm. The approach to the solos really always differed, and that kept my ears and brain alert and curious as to what was coming. This is an album that showcases freshness, individuality, and collective as well as individual creativity. And I really liked it for those reasons. Great. Yeah. Let's hear some more from this group. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. And our final recording this evening is a piano trio mostly. We've got Balash Horvat's Reassurance. And I know I'm not going to pronounce this right. The label is Magyar Kultura Kiado. And then hmm. some abbreviation that I don't know how to say. KFTO, whatever that is. This yeah. came out December 18th. And I can't find much about Horvat, but this seems to be his debut album. I wrote to him by email, but I didn't get a reply. Probably went to the old spam folder. So I'll go with as much information as I could find. I can see the CD back on his Facebook page, but there are no composition credits for the tunes mm. there. But at least we know the players. Balash Horvat on piano, Giza Yonash on bass, Andras Petzek Lakatosh on drums, Mihai Borbe on saxophone on one track, and we've got some vocals as well on one track, Noemi Naj. We're going to start out with the title track, a Horvat original, I'm assuming Reassurance. It's a fresh sounding tune. Borbe is right in on the melody on sax, this is where he guests on here, that seems to unfold continuously, this melody. Uh, Horvat has big chords underneath. There's some cool synced up left-hand piano and bass figures in the 7th and 13th measures. The melody seems to be 26 measures in total. Let's hear it get started. off into a solo there. Nice soprano sax tone and swinging phrases. Horvat solos next and he has a strong articulation while mixing up rhythms in his lines nicely, hitting chords with a lot of percussive force. He's able to do that a lot on this recording. Let's hear a little bit of that later in the tune.
Borbe's back for the melody, and they continue on with some vamping and improvisations kicked hard by Lakatosh's drums. Track two, let's get into standard territory with You Don't Know What Love Is, Gene DePaul and Don Ray, 1941, since we just did a whole episode on <laughs> this. Say, I'm pretty sure we've heard this one before. <laughs> yeah, it's like six versions of it, right? That's yeah. our, our guest episode on Same Difference Podcast. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. It's been in our heads for quite a few months. Uh, I like the arrangement. They've given it here with a long intro of ostinato bass and chiming piano. It's very attractive. Well, let's hear it get going. Horvat shows a lighter and detached touch here. I like the little pauses in his phrasing. Yonash gets a melodic and pleading bass solo here, and Horvat builds his solo from shorter phrases starting on the B section. He gets a lot of momentum going rhythmically. They bring it down for another time through the melody, and Horvat adds some interesting embellishments. Nice ringing bass from Yonash underneath. It gets a vamping outro, getting softer to the end, but with some cymbal and tom textures to wrap it up. Another standard track three, I Hear a Rhapsody. Jack Baker, Dick Gaspare, and George Fragos, 1941. A solo rubato piano opening that for this one picks up into a swing joined by bass and drums. This gets really chugging along in Horvat's solo, and it's about 11 and a half minutes long. Janosch uh, gets an extended bass solo too, and Horvat does some trading of fours with Lakatosh to get some drum work in. They get back to the melody, and Horvat mixes things up with some additional improvisations, making it exciting to a slowed-down ending. Track 4, Bluesette, from the harmonica giant Toots Dielmans, 1963. Another solo rubato piano opening, getting into the waltz tempo for this one, and some vamping. It has a nice lilt with a bit of hesitation in the phrasing that's appealing. Spiffy brushwork from Lakatosh 2, and Horvat has some speedy flowing lines in his solo on this one, so let's hear some of that once he gets going.
and once more I'm around the melody with a fun choppy ending with piano and bass. Track 5, another Michel Legrand tune. We heard one earlier this evening. You Must Believe in Spring, probably his most famous one. It's kind of a jazz standard now from 1967. We come across this one often. Horvat starts this one out solo and rubato as well. Bass and drums come into tempo together seamlessly. This one gets a very gentle and lyrical treatment, and Horvat's solo is quite fluid. A little different approach here. Let's hear a little bit of this one. it back to a restrained and lovely ending. Really nice playing on this tune. Track six, Lonely Blind Love. I found this one on YouTube where the credits are given as a joint composition between Horvat and Nag, the vocalist. It's a longing minor ballad, but we've got a guest vocal, as I said, and she's got an interesting vocal quality and enunciation as well. Let's check out the beginning of this tune. seem to be a lot of lyrics to this tune. The vocals go on for quite a long time. Horvat gets a flowing solo here as well before Noemi returns with the vocals and it surprises with a final major chord to end things up. That really made me sit up in my seat. Track seven. I'm assuming this is also a Horvat original because I've never heard this before, but it's just a little original blues sleeping in the blues. This has got a sense of monkish rhythmic and harmonic playfulness in the melody. The hi-hat and half-note bass under the melody changes up to a chugging swing after that for a round to get Horvat warmed up into starting a solo. Let's just hear it get going.
really gets chugging along from there. And before we check out of this tune, let's hear uh, Yonash here and check out some of his bass solo later on in the tune. keep listening and hear it again, but uh, there's a couple more times around the head and some tag phrases with Lakatosh's drums to end things nicely. And the recording ends up with another standard from Gene DePaul from 1941 as well, I'll Remember April. We get a brisk tempo for this one. It's a standard with a longer melody than usual of 48 measures. They started out with a Latin beat, switching up to swing from the ninth measure and going back to the Latin once again when that opening phrase comes later in the tune towards the end. Horvat is swinging and chiming with a lot of energy, and Lakatosh drives things along with nice accents, and he gets to trade eighths with Horvat for some drum solo breaks. They give it a Latin vamp ending with some more time for Lakatosh to work things up. And that's it. This is really how a debut recording should be, mostly standards, so we can get a sense of a musician's influences and direction with familiar material. We also get three originals in a variety of styles and interesting arrangements or rhythmic feels on the standards. Horvat has plenty of chops and classy swing in him. He can really build percussive energy too and shows off a full palette of articulation styles. His solos are melodic and creative, The trio is tight and energetic, and we get a unique original composition with sax and some vocals on another tune for variety. This is good stuff. Yeah, I thought uh, Horvath was the standout on this album, in fact. I liked his style, Yeah, and I think that's the key to liking this recording, because he plays at length when he solos, and the solos themselves are full of really appealing ideas. I really took to the piano solo, and I hear a rhapsody. It was uh, so much more cheerful at its mid-tempo than I expected it to be. It actually really lifted me up. I also like the mood of the trio, especially um, Horvath himself, captured on You Must Believe in Spring and the solo, which I found sensitive and thoughtful. All of the ideas there are fresh, as they are throughout the album. There's a light cheerfulness to a lot of the tracks. I'm using this word a lot tonight, cheerfulness for Hungarian music, I guess because I didn't really expect it to be like this. You wouldn't expect that from an Eastern European band, I would think. That just made it more interesting for me. Interesting, Horvath really stretches out in a different, more complex and high-speed style on I'll Remember April, the last track, which, by the way, is a track that uh, Johnny and AJ asked us about because they said we we knew it, and I didn't know it until adult music, and now here we are hearing it again. Yeah. (laughs) Are you listening, AJ and Johnny? (laughs) Yeah. The album ends, and you're left wondering, uh, who was that masked man? 
because right. he's got a lot of different styles. It's great. A teaser for the style for the next album, you think, for I'll Remember April with the Latin groove? Could be. We'll see. Yeah. In the meantime, this was an enjoyable and uplifting listen. Yeah, so there you go. Some Hungarian jazz, and it was all really good. A lot of variety. These guys are all right with what's happening in the world of jazz. A nice link to the tradition. We got classy playing, a little bit of adventurous stuff, originals mixed with standards. I'm really glad I decided to do this. Yeah, I thought it was a good idea. It actually turned out to be, well, not only was it good, but it was surprising too. And that always helps. You know, it kind of makes it more interesting. I know that uh, Peter Garfash's new recording is coming out next month, supposedly. So we'll get mm-hmm. a listen to that. We've got Gaz Hughes over in the UK's new recording coming out in about we'll a month. Forward to that. Yeah. And yeah, it's always great when we hear back from, you know, people that we've made contact with in the past and keep the ball rolling, getting new music coming in. It's really satisfying. All right, that's going to wrap it up for episode 147. We're recording a day early. Mike's got his picks, but I don't have mine yet. I'll have to uh, sort through some things and decide what I want to do. Yeah, and my picks are unusually all 20th century to the present. So oh, interesting. <laughs> really late period classical music. I have to say the first Positone recording of the new year is already out. It came out uh, today. So I'm really tempted to uh, just jump on that because I know it's going to be good. But I'll have to see. I've got two uh, albums that came out just on January 5th that I'm already interested in doing. Not next week, but maybe two weeks Mm. from now. We'll do at least one of them. We'll see. I have to go back and see if there's anything that I just can't leave behind from 2023. See, there's that that too, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, by the time this episode goes up, that'll all be sorted and decided. And so you can find the playlist on Deezer. That'll be up a couple hours after this episode. There will also be a posting of it on our Facebook page if you want to come over there and check us out find out what we're going to talk about next week get listening to it early thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo don't forget to check out the same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard podcast with AJ and Johnny and go back to check out that you don't know what love is episode that came out on January 1st if you want to hear the four of us together having a blast and we've decided it's something we want to keep doing so hopefully we can get together with those guys at least once a year either over there or have them back on our podcast and keep the collaboration going that was a lot of fun so stick around you can hear their promo at the end of this episode any final words mike just looking forward to next week 20th century let's bring it on all right let's go back and then come back (laughs) so until then Keep listening. Check out that playlist. It'll be up shortly after this, and we'll see you again next week for episode 148. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.